Today we're going to look at the who, how, and why of the love one another command of God. We'll be uh, talking about text from the Gospel of John. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, uh, the Apostle John wrote this Gospel. One of the main purposes was to focus on the fact that Jesus is in fact God. The God of the universe, the God who gave up his glory he had with the Father before the beginning of time and came down to earth humbling himself as a man to live among us, to live a perfect life, and then to die as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. This is the focus of the Gospel of John. Uh, During the three years of public ministry, John chose 12 men of little note. He didn't choose the kind of people we would choose if we were going to start some venture or some new ministry. Uh, He didn't choose the rich. He didn't choose the powerful uh, he didn't use the pop, choose the popular. Instead, he chose fishermen, tax collectors, the low, the people that, that were looked down upon by the religious elite, by the popular, by the powerful, by the rich. He went around the countryside proclaiming that the kingdom of God is upon us, that the Jewish Messiah Their Savior has arrived, and lo and behold, it is he. This angered the Jewish leaders because they didn't believe for a second that this person who would come from Galilee of all places and pick 12 men of little note to surround himself could possibly be the great Messiah who was going to come and bring glorious kingdom back so that Israel would be prominent in the world. Um, Because of that, they plotted to kill him. They enlisted the aid of one of the twelve. And where we pick up the story now is in an upper room. Jesus has gone to be with his disciples to celebrate what we now call the Last Supper, but was actually the Jewish Passover feast. He has told the disciples that that one of them is going to betray him. And Judas being called out has left the room. And now we get to the passage we're going to look at today. It's in John, it's in chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 33. Uh, if you don't have a Bible... Uh, there should be one in front of you. If you don't have one at home, we have some outside, and you're more than, more than free to take one of them with you and take it home. Um, but if you haven't a Bible in front of you, uh, we will have it on the screens up here. Uh, so let us look now at John 13, starting in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Our focus is going to be on verse 34 and 35, which is the commandment. But before we look at that, I would like to look at the verses surrounding it. Um, If you notice, uh, the first verse is a verse that tells the disciples he is not going to be with them long. Their mindset was that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior. He was going to bring the kingdom back. So he's now saying, although he said it before, they they didn't pay much attention to it apparently. So he's now saying... I'm only going to be here for a little while, and then I'm leaving. And then we see, at the end, we see Peter's response. Peter's response is, Lord, where are you going? It's like he didn't even hear the commandment in the middle. Okay? Now, why would he not take notice when the Lord says, I have a new commandment for you? Well, it could be because... Of his mindset at the time. And it helps us if we put ourselves in their shoes. The the apostles, the disciples at that time, were were Jewish. They knew the Jewish law. They they knew that the the command to love had been around a long time. Uh, We look at Leviticus 19.18. And it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The object of the love was your fellow Jews. It was your own people. So that would be the mindset that would come from this text. The way to display the love was not to take vengeance or bear a grudge. This is where the Jewish people would have been prior to Jesus. Now, when Jesus came, he changed the parameters a bit. The disciples were with him when he did it, so they would have heard this as well. Uh, He told them in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy. Uh, That takes them a little out of their, their normal thought process because they thought, if I'm supposed to love my my fellow Jews, I should hate the other people, my enemies. And Jesus said, no, that's not true. You're to love your enemies as well. In fact, you're even to pray for them. He then went on to change it a little more. Because when asked what were the greatest commandments, one of them was love your neighbor as yourself. And the immediate response from the Jewish crowd was, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to display this love to? So he gives them the parable of the Good Samaritan. That parable changed the definition of neighbor. And this is where we usually look at it. The definition of neighbor became not just your fellow Jew, but those outside Israel, the Samaritans, who are never thought to be part of the Jewish nation. But he also changed the prevailing definition of love. 
If you notice in the parable, there was a priest, there was a man from Jerusalem who went on a travel, and, and as he was going along on his way, he, he was beaten and robbed and left by the side of the road. Priest came along, walked on the other side of the road, and walked past him, leaving him there. Now, Levi walked along, and he walked past him and left him there. And a Samaritan man came along, picked him up off the road, took him to an inn, cared for him, paid for his care. And then Jesus said, well, who, who is the neighbor here? And the man said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So now the definition of love is not just don't take vengeance upon them. Now the definition of love is show mercy to them, show care to them. So when they get to the new commandment, they're thinking, oh, commandment to love. Yeah, I got that. I heard you before. But you saying you're leaving? Where are you going? That's the reaction. Um, it reminds me of how often I do something similar. I look at a familiar passage and think, I've read that, I know that, let's get on to the next one. And I don't stop and really meditate on it and ponder on it. And I challenge you, if you've experienced the same thing, to think about that, and, and next time you're reading through Scripture and you say, oh, been there, done that, I've seen it, I know it, I'm on to the next part, uh, stop and take a, a real look at it. That's what we're going to do now. Is we're going to stop and take a real look at the new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There are a couple of things to note here. Uh, one is the object of the love. The object of the love has changed. It's no longer your neighbor. It's not your natural family. In, Carol- in North Carolina, when I came out here, I was came from Arizona, where we typically didn't have any family. And I came out here, and everybody has a family, and everybody goes home for everything. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see how the families care and love for one another. But it's not that. It's instead of your natural family, it's your new family. Uh, Jesus redefined who the family was. You remember the story of Jesus teaching in a house, and a man came in and said, Your mother and brothers are outside. They want to speak to you. Jesus, looking around the room, said, These, these disciples, these are my brothers and sisters and mother. The disciples were his family. So when we look at uh, the one another's in this scripture, the people he was talking to were the faithful eleven, those that were left after Judas left. Those were his family. 
But what about us? From a rules of interpretation, you look at a passage and you see who the audience was and you say, okay, he spoke that to the audience. Now, is there reason to believe that what he told them applies to us as well? In this case, it's pretty easy to discern because over 60 times in the New Testament letters, you'll find this text either quoted or alluded to in in commands of how we, the church, are to interact and love one another. So, the next three weeks, we're going to be looking over some of those passages that tell us how practically we will love one another and what that looks like. But it's, it's because this is a commandment to us, we should be paying close attention to what Jesus says. Um, the real question I had is, why are we supposed to love one another? This is one of the few places where he actually tells us why we are supposed to love one another. When I was young, I, I left upstate New York and, and went to Arizona to, to attend college. And when I got there, I didn't know anybody because I'd never been west of the Mississippi River. So not knowing anyone, I, I wanted to belong, so I, I joined a fraternity. Now, I don't know if they're still like this because it was a few years ago, but when, when I joined the fraternity, there were like-kind fraternities. In other words, the rich kids all were in one fraternity and the athletes were in another fraternity and the really bright people were in another fraternity and, and then there was our fraternity. Um, we weren't the most athletic. We, we weren't the richest. Uh, we weren't the smartest, but we were proud. We were proud of who we were. And we wanted people to know who we were. So we took our Greek letters and we took that, that little symbol that you have, the Greek letters, that shield, and we put it on everything. We put it on T-shirts, we put it on sweatshirts, we put it on jackets, although in Arizona you don't get much of a chance to wear jackets. We put it on our hats. That way when we walked around campus, they'd know who we were. We even had these little pins that we had our Greek letters on. And if we were fortunate enough to find a girl that would go out with us, we'd actually give her the pen. That way people would know that girl was associated with us. What's that got to do with the passage today? Well, the reason that we are told to love one another is because this is the way the world will know who we are. We no longer have Jesus present, so we can't follow him around as the disciples did. That was the way they were known before he left, because they were always on his heels. They were always following him around. That wasn't going to be the case. So how was, how was the world going to know they were actually his disciples? How is the world going to know we are his disciples? Well, it's not because I wear a shirt that says integrity on it. It's not because I wear a cross. It's not because I have a bumper sticker that says, follow me to church or Jesus loves you. It's not even because 
I'm a good moral person. It's not because I care for the poor. Those are important and we should do them. But that's not the way the world is going to know who we are. Francis Schaeffer once said, this is one of the most frightening verses in scripture. Because it's basically saying, Jesus is telling the world that they can look at someone professing to be a Christian and know whether they are a liar or not by the way they love other believers. So, not only can the world say that, but you and I can say that of ourselves. Am I really a believer? Do I love others? And not just any others. Do I love other believers? Do I love believers I don't even know? That's the unique mark that makes a believer known to the world. The disciples had shown some love up to this point in time. It would have been more the love of a love towards a neighbor, a love of uh, a love like I love myself. They didn't always show it towards each other because the reality is they um, they had just gotten through having an argument before the Last Supper in which they were trying to determine bragging rights over who was going to be the greatest when the kingdom came. It's kind of like we argue now, see LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Uh, are the Warriors the greatest team of all time? Well, they were until Friday night. Um, but they were acting just like the rest of the world, concerned with themselves and their position in it. Um, they did love him, however, and, and they showed it. They left everything to follow him. They left their homes. They left their families. They left everything. Uh, they stayed with him through thick and thin. They even stayed with him when others left, when he would say such crazy things like, Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they still stuck around. That's because they loved him. Now, if the standard that they were called to love each other by was the love they had displayed toward him, that would have been an awesome burden. Quite a task. Because, frankly, you are not Jesus. And so... For me to love you as I would love Jesus, scary. But that wasn't the standard they were called to. Now, the standard they were called to was to love each other as he had loved them. At that point in time, they didn't even know how much that was because his love had not truly been displayed yet. But shortly after his supper with them, he would be taken off, placed on a cross, held up for ridicule, suffer the wrath of God poured down on him 
for the sins of you and I and the disciples. Gloriously, he was then raised again and, and conquered death and, and sin for us. But that's how much he loved us. This is the God of the universe, a God beyond belief. That's how much. Why would he possibly ask us to love each other that much? It seems like an impossible task. Well, perhaps it's because he isn't around anymore. He isn't physically here as he was with the disciples. Now, we have scripture to look back on and see him through scripture. But the world doesn't believe our scripture. The world doesn't even necessarily know what it says. So how are they? How are they going to know the love of this God who gave up everything for us? Well, First John, or pardon me, John, the Apostle John in First John 4.12 tells us, by the way, First John is probably the best commentary on this verse you're going to find. It was actually written by the author of the verse. So we'll go to First John and look at uh, 4.12, and it says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. So as we show that love, the love he showed to us, as we show it to other believers, we are demonstrating to the world the kind of love our God has. But how is it possible? That's the real question. How can I possibly do this? Well, he answers that question in the next chapter. In chapter 14, he tells us when he's gone, when he goes away, he's going to send a helper for us. This helper will abide with us and in us forever. That helper is the Holy Spirit who comes into our life, who changes our heart, changes from rebels against God to lovers of God. He changes into new creations who love God and others more than we love ourselves. It is by this Holy Spirit in each and every believer and the changes that he makes within us that it's possible we can actually be ambassadors for the king. Because it's only as we demonstrate the love of Christ that we, that we have the credibility in the eyes of the world to give them the message of reconciliation we embrace. So what does that practically look like? Well, we're going to flesh that out in the next three weeks. We're going to have different men come up and and explain from different passages what this can look like. But generally speaking, let's let the Apostle John enlighten us. In 1 John 3, 16 through 18... 
He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and see his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So it's not just words, it's action. When I take a bullet for Jesus, well, that's not really the question here. He's not saying that we should be taking a bullet for him. The question is, would I take a bullet for you? Would I take a bullet for somebody who's not even in this room who's a believer? Ah, but I'm unlikely to be in that scenario. At least I hope I'm not. So let's make it more real. Would I be willing to give up something, anything, for a believer? Would I give up my money? Would I give up a vacation I was going to take so I could make it possible for you to go on vacation? Now it's getting closer to home. Would I give up my time? Well, I get up at 4.30 in the morning so I can go meet with a brother who needs encouragement. Would I give up my soccer or football game? I hold those dearly. Um, Or watching television or playing video games so that I could find a way to love other believers. Would I give up my pride? Would I be open and honest with other believers so that my life could be a blessing to them? Share the sins that I've committed? Share the tragedies in my life? Share the joys in my life? Would I be willing to do that with other believers? Would I be willing to take the time to do that? Get off my phone, get off my iPad. Get out of the entertainment that I am so absorbed in to share with others. Would I be willing to confess my sin to my friends? Would I be willing to confess my sins and repent from my enemies? Would I be willing to confess and repent to those people I really want to respect me? Am I willing to confess and repent to my wife? How about my children? In closing, let's uh, try this little exercise. Um, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, there is a familiar passage in chapter 13 that deals with the definition of love. Now, we often hear it at, at weddings, and uh, it sounds really good. But the context is not weddings. It's not husband and wife. Paul is writing to a church who's having difficulty loving one another. They have no unity in the church. 
and they are displaying love for one another. So as part of the way Paul is telling them they should live with one another and act with one another, he defines love. We're going to use the NIV version, so if you have an ESV, sorry. But we're going to use the NIV version here because it's easier to understand and, and for the purposes of what we're going to do, uh, it, it helps us uh, bring it closer to home. What we're going to do is we're going to substitute Jesus' name for love. And, and as we do it, don't just read this rotely. Remember Jesus. Remember how he lived. Remember how he died. Remember who he is. Think about how he embodied these very principles. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I want to go one step further. And that is, let's substitute ourselves for the word love. As we read through this, I would ask that you would meditate on the way Christ embodied these very virtues and use that as the standard of what love means and how you should be rather than the world's standards of how these virtues play out in life. I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. I do not boast. I am proud. Unfortunately, I am proud. But I should not be proud. I do not dishonor others. I am not self-seeking. I am not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope. And I always persevere. Let us pray.